Uh, anyway, so we're on week three. We're actually going to take a little step back. We, we, uh, we're doing this Fruits of the Spirit, and uh, I was, I kind of had a burden to talk about something last week, and I put a placeholder for it in there, if you all remember this, uh, and it was kind of a little thing that was an aside in the sermon, and I was a little proud of it. I thought it was kind of a modern, updated tale, was you know an illustration, and, and as soon as we're done, we're going to lunch afterwards, and my wife gets in the car. She goes, I don't know what that cartoon thing was about, but I was very happy when it was finally over because I had no idea what that was about. Okay, well, sometimes you try that triple axle and it doesn't land, you know. Um, but I, I've been praying about that this week because that's kind of something that's been gnawing on me is this, the message was that little aside, and I realize now it was actually a sermon in itself. So we're going to take a step back and go to that. We are in the fruits of spirit, which come out of Galatians 5.22. The one thing we need to realize is, is when God says, I want to produce fruit in your life, you don't get to determine what that looks like. Sometimes we say, well, I do produce fruit. It looks like this. No, God tells us what his fruit looks like, and it looks like this. It looks like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit. These are also attributes of God. It basically saying when, when you're mine, you're going to start looking like me, and you're going to start seeing my attributes coming out in your life. And if we're not, then that means that we're not really progressing the way we're supposed to. So that's what we're talking about, but I just felt very, very motivated to talk about this last week and again this week, because why aren't we seeing fruit is a good question, because I, I don't see it as much as I think we should, not in my life and not in others. Now, we're supposed to be different because of the God's fruit in our lives. People are supposed to see us, and we're supposed to be different. But if you talk to the world, and you find out why they're not coming to church, they'll say something like this, well, Christians are just like everybody else. That shouldn't ever be something that they say, right? We should be different. And so what's happening there, and I just really believe that what's happening is that we get deceived. And of course, we know we have an enemy, Satan, which literally means enemy. Uh, we know he's a deceiver. We know he's a liar. But I think something we don't fully appreciate is how good he is at what he does. He can deceive us in ways that are much more subtle than we anticipate. And he's getting in and being effective because we're looking for the big stuff and he's coming in with the small stuff. He's very, very good. When he sees us kind of reaching out to God and wanting to say, God, I want to see fruit in your life. He's very good at coming in and manipulating and changing things. And we have to, we have to understand that. Yo. Yo. <laughs> you got a gift, my friend. You saw that there was something that I was trying to do and you you figured that out. That's why you are who you are. Yeah, that's why the devil is who he is. He's very good at what he does. So let me ask a question, take another step back and say, what's the purpose of being a Christian? Now, we've done a very good job as a church for the past 200 years of telling people how to become Christians, you know, uh, and you know, repent and be baptized, you know turn or burn, however you want to put it. You know, we've, we've done a very good job of telling people, if you don't turn from sin and turn to God, then you're going to hell. And if you do and you believe in Jesus Christ, you're going to heaven. We've done a very good job of it, but I'm afraid that we've focused on that so much that people think that's the end game. The purpose of being a Christian is to not go to hell. And that's certainly not the purpose of the Christian life. Uh, if it were, Jesus would just save us and take us to heaven right away. But he leaves us on earth, and he leaves us on earth for a purpose. And the purpose he gave us was his purpose. Now, when Jesus came here, he talked about one thing. By far away, more than anything else we've talked about this before, the one thing Jesus says, I'm here to do, is my Father's will. That's it. And then he handed that to us when he went back to heaven. 
And we see this in many places, but one of the most famous places is something known as the Lord's Prayer. The disciples come to him and say, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, okay, I'll teach you how to pray. And this is the model prayer for our lives. And this is in it. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is our mission. That's a mission statement. That was Jesus' mission statement. That's our mission statement. We are literally responsible for seeing God's will done on earth the way it's done in heaven. And by the way, that is instantly and, and all the time. Right? We're, we're supposed to be bringing heaven to earth. Literally, how in the world are we going to accomplish that? Well, we do it one heart at a time, and that's what Jesus tells us. So the purpose of Christians is supposed to be to develop the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, and that draws people to God. And he tells us this too. He says, this is my to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, and that shows you to be my disciples. This is it. You want to bring the glory to God? Here's how you bring the glory to God, Jesus says. Bear much fruit. And when he's talking fruit, he's very specific. We're talking about the fruit of the Spirit. We don't get to determine it. Well, I do bear much fruit. I give money to wounded vets. Well, that's not what God says bearing fruit is, right? We, we don't, oh, well, I do community work. I pick up litter. What, whatever it is, that's not what God says his fruit is. He's saying, you need to see my fruit in your life. You need to bear much fruit in your life. And your purpose is to show the fruit of the Spirit. If we did that, we wouldn't be able to have churches big enough to hold all the people that would be coming. Because God's, Jesus says, lift me up and I'll draw all men to me. But we're not. I don't know if you guys pay attention to these kind of things, but Barna did a poll a few years ago that scared the churches because for the first time in America, more people are affiliated with none of the above, which means they don't belong to any church, than any, than any other church. It used to always be more people went to church than not. That's no longer true in America. We have become a post-Christian nation. Why? What happened? We start off great what happened. And, and we like to blame the government. We like to blame society. We like to blame a lot of things for this. But the reality is that you can't tell me it's more hostile now than it was when the church started. You can't be more hostile than Rome throwing you into the Colosseum for your faith. That's a lot more hostile than what we have now. And believe me, the decadence in America still not yet has reached the decadence of Rome, thank God. So it's not society. It's not government. It's us. We are not producing the fruit of the Spirit the way we're supposed to. I think that we have kind of uh, two big mistakes that show up in our lives because of the churches. The two biggest reasons, I think, is that churches are more invested in teaching religion than relationship, and most Christians are more interested in entertainment than authenticity. You know, the, a lot of churches want to teach you how to be their specific religion, and in so doing, you know, please God. That's not what God's calling us to do. That's not the fruit. And a lot of Christians wake up, and they decide, okay, um, where will I go to church today? Let me decide what message God wants to give me, and I'll choose my church accordingly. That happens. We've seen it happen here. You know, we'll do a series, and we'll see people coming for the series. Oh, I love this series. This is so great. I'm so glad you're doing a series on this. I want to hear about this. And when the series is done, they're gone. Where are they? Well, they went somewhere else that had a different series. They're waking up and they're saying, well, I, I, what if God, I, I'll go listen to this. It's, it's this mentality that I can pick what God's going to say to me, but the prophetic word of God never comes off of a menu. You know, it's always, in my life, I, I've actually only had a few times I really felt God spoke to me. Every time he spoke to me, he said something completely different than what I was asking him at the time. I see this in the Bible, too. He does it all the time. When he comes to talk to Job, Job's been talking for days about all these questions he has for God. God comes in, and he answers none of them. 
You know, he, when God comes and he speaks, he, he speaks to, to what he believes we, what he knows we need in our life, not necessarily what we're asking for. Those oftentimes aren't the same thing. So we have to understand that God wants to come and speak to us and he wants to speak to us in his truth and his love. But what's happened is this idea that we either go for the religion or we go for the entertainment has allowed falsehood to sneak into the church, not just the pews, but the pulpits. And we have a lot of falsehood that we're going to get out in order to, to understand that we're not bearing the fruit because of the falsehoods in our life. Here's something interesting that you may not realize, but it is the soil that determines the quality of the harvest according to Jesus Christ. See, I always thought that wasn't true. It seems like it should be more like the power of God's word, and, and, but, but God's word's always the same. It's the soil that makes a difference. In one of the most famous basic parables Jesus teaches, he tells us this. A large crowd's come together, and he spokes by way of, speaks by way of a parable and says, the sower went out to sow his seed. You've heard this, right? You, we all know this one. We, you know, we, I, I'm looking around. I know some of you are like me, Protestants, so we went to vacation Bible school and Sunday school. Some of you are Catholic, CCD class. We learned this one, right? This is a basic parable we always learn. And I was always taught that this is a parable about salvation. But this is clearly not a parable about salvation. I don't know why it never occurred to me until this past week when I was looking at it. Oh my gosh, I've missed it. This is not about salvation. That's not what Jesus is talking about. And I can show you why. Because salvation is, let me slip into my other <coughs> job for a second, binary, Boolean, some of you. Um, it's either yes or no. You're either saved or you're not. There's no degrees of salvation. You're either saved or you're not saved. But at the end of this parable, Jesus talks about harvest that's 20, 30, 40, 100 times. He's talking about a variation. There's no variation to salvation. He's talking about the Christian life. So let's pay attention and look at this, not just as a, sometimes we zone out. Oh, this is about salvation. I'm saved. I don't need to read this one. Pay attention. He's not talking about salvation. He said, the sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell beside the road, and it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among the thorns. The thorns grew up, and with it, it choked it out. Other seed fell onto the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. And the other gospel actually goes 30, 40, 100. A hundred times as great. So this is like it, it's producing fruit, in other words. And then his disciples will come up and they say, what does this mean? And it's interesting because he says, look, to you it's been granted now to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. This is a principle of heaven is what Jesus is saying. I have something to tell you that's a spiritual truth. That's what he's telling us. He says to the disciples, it's your joy. I'm going to share this with you. Others aren't going to hear it, but you are. And the disciples gracefully shared it with us. So now we have it, right? He says, here it is. But he also, by the way, tells them, part I cut out, if you don't get this one, you're going to get nothing. This is the most basic parable I'm going to teach you. This is it. If you don't get this, you'll get nothing. So here it is. The parable's meaning is this. The seed is the word of the Lord, the word of God. Those beside the road are those who've heard, and the devil comes and takes it away from their heart. The soil is your heart. And what Jesus is saying, he's saying that our heart determines the effectiveness of God's word in our life. Our heart will determine the fruit that we see and the harvest that we see. So that kind of changes some things. It's not just about salvation. It's about everything in our life, the fruit. If you don't know why you don't have the fruit of God in your life, it's your heart. That's what Jesus is saying. It, it's, it's your heart. So it is our job then to prepare our heart to receive God's word. It's our job. It's not the sower's job. He just keeps going. He throws the seed and keeps walking. 
That's not the sower's job. It's our job. We're the gardener. We're the one that has to get the soil ready. We have to break up the hard ground. We have to remove the rocks. We have to make sure there's no weeds in there. It is our responsibility to tend the soil. If we don't, we won't see God's fruit in our lives. Forget his gifts. We won't see the fruit. If we want to see God's gifts and we're going to see God's fruit and we want to see the, that kind of a life that we, we see in the New Testament, we have to prepare our hearts to receive it because that's what bears much fruit. God sows his word, but the soil receives anything. And we have to know that. I don't know how many gardeners there are amongst you. I live with one. Um, but any gardener will tell you, you never have to plant weeds. Isn't that true? You don't have to work at all to grow weeds. You just kind of, you know, dig up the ground and wait. Weeds will grow. It's easy to grow weeds. It's hard to grow, grow, grow fruit, but it's easy to grow weeds. Why? Because the nature brings weeds. It's really easy to bring weeds into your life, right? And that's why uh, in Galatians, Paul writes this, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will reap. What are you sowing in your life? God's sowing his word. That's what Jesus says. I'm, I'm always trying to get my word in your life. I'm trying to get that. But what's in your heart? You know, what else is there besides God's word? Because if you don't do anything, if you just kind of passively let life happen and you're trying to grab onto God's word, you got to know a lot of weeds are getting in there. Because by nature, weeds happen. You don't have to grow them. You don't have to ask for them. You simply have to live a life. You know, what are you watching on television? What are you watching on the internet? What are you reading? What are you talking about? You know, it, they, they say that, um, you know, the tithing is giving 10% of everything you earn to God. They say 8% of the Christian population tithes. 8% actually tithes. Um, I would guess, I don't have a stat on this, less give 10% of their time to God. Even less. If you add up all the hours you spend with all the things you spend it on, how much time are you giving the Word of God? Not just reading the Bible, but all parts of it. Reading about, thinking about God, talking about God, you know, Listening to praise music, singing praise music. What, what, what percentage of your time is spent doing that? What's the rest of it spent? Well, the rest of it's spent in weeds. It's, it's, you're, we're, we're cultivating gardens of weeds. And Jesus tells us that. He, he comes in and he says, look, he tells his disciples, because they're all worried about what they're eating and what defiles them, he says, that doesn't defile you. He says, what's in your heart? Whatever comes in through the mouth passes the stomach and gets eliminated. But the things that come out of the mouth, that came from your heart. That's what defiles the man. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slander. These are the things which defile a man. Is that, that this is, these are the weeds that nature is going to put in you. We have to tend the garden against that. And we have to say, no, I'm going to spend more time cultivating the word of the Lord in my life than I'm going to be paying attention to the weeds that come in our life. I promise you, if I were to take a poll in this area, there are more people who know right now is on the depth chart for the Pittsburgh Steelers offensive line that could tell me what's in Jeremiah. Promise you that's true. And when we study all kinds of things, we argue about the stupidest stuff on, online and, and, and on the radio, the talk shows, all kinds of stupid things people argue about and talk about, discuss, learn, memorize, can spout back statistics like this. But they couldn't tell you three promises of the Lord. We're, we're tending a garden of weeds and we wonder why we don't see God's fruit. Um, and we're told in Proverbs, above all else, you need to guard your heart. We need to guard the heart from the stuff that gets in it. Maybe we need to pull the plug, cut the cord. Maybe we need to get off Facebook. Maybe we need to get out of some of these places. Stop listening. To the, maybe we need to start doing some things which are radical in order to guard our hearts from the weeds that are getting in there. Because believe me, God's 
God's, God's fruit is having a hard time getting nutrition of our lives because it's being sucked away by the weeds, which is what weeds do. They suck all the nutrition out. So if you guard the soil, now what? Well, this is the other part, and here's where the devil's very, very good. Because we need to keep the soil pure, and we need to keep this cycle pure. Now, I'm going to switch parables here. I'm going to switch metaphors. I've been talking about soil, but I want to talk about something else because there's this growth pattern that happens in, in, in nature and in our lives. Um, I don't know if you knew this. I didn't know this, but uh, some plants need winter. I didn't know that. I was at uh, Triple B Farm talking to uh, Carolyn Byron like a couple years ago, and I would ask her what the crop was going to be like, she thought. And she says, well, we won't have a very good berry crop. I said, why? She says, we didn't get a good freeze. I said, really? She goes, yeah, if we don't get a good freeze, we won't get a good berry crop. But if you look at plants, they need everything. They need sun. We know that. They need rain. They, a lot of them need winter. I didn't know that. They need a freeze. And so do we. We need the same kind of thing because God plants a seed and then he's going to cause it to grow. And he wants it to be bountiful and fruitful. So you're going to have sunshine. We love it when it's sunshining. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. You're sunshining. It's great. Sing your praises, Lord. Sunshining. I love it. Raining, not so much. God, why is it always raining in my life right now? We've had a really long, rainy season. Not liking it very much. Winter, really don't like that. We don't want that in our lives at all. But God sends every season because he's trying to produce a good crop in our lives. If all we had was sunshine, nothing would grow. It would all burn up and die. And we, we, need, we need all those parts of it. And we had Summerfest, and it was great. We prayed for, for sunshine. We had it. Remember what happened the next day? Oh, man, it didn't rain. It was almost like God said, I held it back. Now it's coming. And you know, it's like in my house. Everybody knows. I got this septic tank that backs up when it rains, you know. It was raining, 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 raining. I'm listening to come down. I said, I don't care. Thank you, Lord, for holding it off. I know we have to have rain. If I have to empty my, my basement, I'll empty my basement. But, you know, we have to have rain. Things have to have rain to grow. So do you. You know, we have this crop in our lives. There's a cycle to it all. And our cycle is kind of a little bit different. You know, we have to learn about God, believe in God, and then declare him. This is our cycle. We learn about God. We, we learn to trust and believe in God. And then we declare that with our lips. And we tell other people about it. And that's the cycle of growth for a Christian. Learn, believe, declare. Learn, believe, declare. That's what worship is. We're declaring God's goodness. You read the Psalms as we does. Oh, thank you, God, you're long-suffering. Oh, thank you, God, you're merciful. Oh, thank you, God, you know, you're slow to anger. Oh, thank you, God, you're great. We, we're always declaring who God is with our lips. That's worship. So we, we have this cycle, and the devil's very, very smart about that because he can't interrupt the cycle, but he can poison it. And that's what he does. This is what I'm talking about, the subtle stuff. And, and in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, look, you shouldn't be surprised by this because Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He will come in and he will start mixing untruthful things with truth just a little tiny bit. And you have to know that he's very, very good. He's good. Very good. Very good. He's good at what he does. And he's doing it to us all the time. And this is where we switch the metaphor over to something that Jesus also talks about called salt. This is another one I think everybody knows. You've probably heard this expression even. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has become tasteless or has lost its flavor, how can it be made salty again? Look, it's no longer good for anything except being thrown out in the street and trampled. That's what it's good for. Here's, here's the problem. And this has actually caused theologians a lot of problem over the years. Salt can't lose its flavor. It's like literally impossible. 
And, and certainly in the day of Jesus, there was no possible way of making salt lose its flavor. Theologians just choked on this because they couldn't come up with a good explanation of what Jesus was talking about. You can take a grain of salt and pound it in powder, it's still salty. You can burn it in fire, it's still salty. You can put it in water, and guess what? The water becomes salty. Salt doesn't lose its flavor. What's Jesus talking about? But it was really funny because I preached on this uh, back during the Elisha series. And for some reason, this is one of the few times in my life I've hit one of these problems and it's like, it's not a problem at all. Because God prepared me for it because at the time, Victoria and I were binge watching Chopped on the Food Network. You know, so we, we've been watching this. Some of you guys may have watched this show, the Food Network show. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't saying, Peter, you are the salt of the world. James, you are the salt. He's speaking to all of his disciples collectively. You are the salt of the earth. And not just the 12 he called, Jesus would have other disciples that would follow them. Anywhere from 70 to 100 people were in the background kind of. We had his, his chosen 12, but there are other people who followed him at all times. So I want you to catch this. He's talking to a collection of believers, and he tells this collection of believers, you're the salt of the earth. See, I know how to make a handful of salt lose flavor. You just mix other things in with it. I can't tell you how many times on chopped. I'll see somebody cooking something. They'll take a spoon. Ooh, that's too salty. What do they do? They grab something and mix in with it. All you have to do is mix things in with the salt and it will lose its flavor. And I believe this is what Jesus is telling us. If we, as because he's speaking to a group, if a collection of believers, we can call that a church today, if a church has lost its saltiness, here's what it's good for. Nothing. It might as well be trampled underfoot. It's worse than useless. It's dangerous because it will teach wrong things. So Jesus is warning us about this. As salt, you can lose your effectiveness when you mix it. And the interesting thing about that, by the way, when salt loses its flavor, if you actually look at the Greek word here, isn't losing its flavor. The, that word that's used in the Greek is actually to be foolish or to make foolish. I think Jesus is very clearly saying, you take it, you make it foolish. You mix stuff in with it, and now it's foolishness. You can't add anything to Jesus and get it better. Anything you try to add to Jesus' teaching makes it worse. And God is always warning us from the Old Testament to the New Testament, you cannot mix sin and holy. If you try, it's an abomination before him. He tells us this in Deuteronomy. He says, look, do not inquire regarding their gods, the God of the world. How do those nations serve their gods so I might do the same? No, you shall not worship the Lord your God that way. I'll tell you how to worship me. Don't look at somebody else. I'll tell you, because they offer to their gods every abomination the Lord detests. You can't mix that in with what I'm going to tell you and please me. So many of us, were trying to mix in stuff from our culture into religion and use it together. Christianity plus our culture equals salt that's lost its flavor. And this is what Jesus is warning us about. We can't mix stuff in. We have to stay away. False teaching leads false belief in lazy people. I'll say lazy people because we're told to check for things. We're told, in fact, in, in Thessalonians, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. If you know it's evil, stay away from it. If you know a preacher on television isn't preaching the full gospel and you've caught them in a bunch of stuff that's not real, what are you listening to them for? Why would you listen to somebody you know is mixing stuff in with their salt? Because the devil's smart. He doesn't replace salt with sugar. He mixes it. So you see enough of it. I like that. I have had Christians say, yeah, I know, but he's uplifting. I, and I'm kind of down right now. And I find it nice to listen to him occasionally. So I'll put him on. Okay, if you know that they're mixing salt with other things 
you, you, it's an abomination. Throw it out and trample it. We have to get it out of our lives because it's going to lead us to false teaching. In Matthew, Jesus says this, look, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This is, by the way, one of my favorite scenes in the Bible. Let me set this up for you. They've just fed the 5,000. <laughs> They're coming over on the boat now. And Jesus never wastes a moment. He only has three years, right? So he's always teaching, always teaching, always showing. He's teaching them. He's like, there's something I need to teach you now. And they get caught up in this thing. It just it cracks me up. Watch this. Uh, they began to discuss this among themselves. They said, well, he said that because we didn't bring any bread. See, they had baskets of bread left over, right? They left them for the people. And they're like, oh, man, we should have brought bread. Jesus is saying we should have brought bread. And Peter's like, yeah, I'm hungry. Where, 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 where? I want bread. Uh, and they're sitting there talking about bread. And you could just see, I mean, I, I don't know if Jesus face palms or Jesus eye rolls, but I, but I almost could see Jesus going, I'm not talking about bread. I'm, I'm, it's just like you see Jesus aware says, you men of little faith, why are you discussing about bread? Why, why would you do that? And I love it. He says, did you not remember what I just did with bread? Do you know what I could do with a loaf of bread? You just saw me feed 5,000 people with a couple loaves of bread. Why would you think I care about bread? He's like, pay attention here. I'm trying to get, I'm trying to get your attention. He says, look, how many baskets were left over? After, just drop that. Here it is. How do you not understand? I'm not speaking concerning bread. I'm talking to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So he's in the, at that moment, they understood he wasn't talking about bread, but the teaching. He's saying, beware that this will get mixed in with what you have. And by the way, it does. In the book of Acts, they had to fight against it. They start coming in and they tell all the Gentiles, well, you need to get circumcised now. They start bringing in things from another religion. They had to fight against this. He says, don't bring this in. Don't let it come in. It's tempting, but don't let it come in. Because Paul tells us later, a little leaven will, will, will affect the whole loaf. Just a little tiny bit. It's all it takes. When that happens, we have mixed something in with the salt. Now, I don't have much time to talk about this much more. I'm, I was going to give a lot of examples. Let me just give you one. Because I'm, I just, this is really heavy on my heart. I know people, and let me say as a disclaimer, because I almost have to do this, nobody present. Okay, I'm not talking about anybody who's here. Just, just relax. Don't look around. I wonder who he's talking about. And I'm not talking about anybody here. You all can relax. Uh, but I know people who've lost their faith because of belief in incorrect teaching. And it's painful for me to watch because uh, some of these people that I know have been believers for a very long time. But they just never went through winter yet. And now they are. But they held on to improper belief. And when it failed them, they believed God failed them. And, and here's, here's the purpose of fruit. The purpose of the fruit in our life, if they're attributes of God, is so you know who God is. And no one can ever lie to you about God. But that's the purpose of God's fruit in your life. If I had somebody coming to visit, and I was, let's say I was out of town, and they said, hey, I'm coming into town, can, you know, I don't have any place to stay, can you put me up? I'd say, sure, you can go to our house, I'll call Victoria, and she'll, you know, make up a bed for you. I don't have much, but whatever we have is yours, right? We'll, we'll set you up. And so let's say that they came, and they did that, and I come up flying in, I come in late, and we catch, I catch up with the guy the next morning for breakfast, right? We meet breakfast down at Wagner's or something. I say, hey, how was it last night? I said, I don't know, it's kind of weird. Really? Why? I don't know, I came there, and your wife was cooking, and she didn't give me anything. She didn't give me any food? Nope, she didn't say anything about it, didn't give me any food, did nothing. She just took it, went in the next room and ate. I said, really? Yeah. And so I went out to get something to eat, and I came back with my, you know, subway, and uh, she'd already gone to bed, I guess. Shut off all the lights. They left the door unlocked. I came in, you know, um, and I, I had to find something to use as a pillow and something to use as a blanket. It was really strange. 
you know. If that happened, I would not be upset. I wouldn't be angry because I would know this for a fact. He wasn't in my house and he hadn't met my wife, you know. I don't know where you slept last night, but it wasn't my place. Are you sure you checked the address I gave you? Because you walked into some stranger's house. Good thing you weren't arrested. That was not my wife. My wife can't let anybody go hungry. I'm just telling you right now, it's not in her nature. There's not a soul lie that she would. We carry soup cans in our car in case we see a person begging on the side of the road so we can give them food. She hates to see people hungry. She won't even let creatures go hungry. You know, if there's a dog in her house she doesn't like, she still feeds it. She hates to see people go hungry. It's like her big thing. She can't see it. So I I know her nature, and I know this story you're telling me can't possibly be my wife. I don't know who you were with, but you weren't with my wife, because I know her. I know her nature. If we know God's nature, and we should because that should be coming out in our lives, there should be no way the enemy can lie to us about God. We'll know who he is, and we'll know what he's like. The only reason the enemy can lie to us is because we have an improper understanding of who God is, and then he could sneak lies in. So let me give you an example, um, fasting. So I, w- I was asked recently if I knew any books on fasting because I preached on it, and I said, no, I don't. Now, I, I believe there, there are probably some great books on fasting, but I didn't find them. I mean, I searched through Amazon and I searched on the web. I found none of them. I found two incorrect teachings about fasting when I was researching it. And it was really hard for me because I didn't, I'm no expert on fasting, and I felt God was calling me to, to preach on fasting, and I was fighting God by the way, I don't know if you guys remember when that series came up, but we were in a downturn in our attendance. That summer, we had nine people in church one day. The day I preached on fasting, I think we had 14. You know? And so I was really kind of wondering if we we're going to continue. I was like, nine people, maybe we should just shut it down. And I was praying to God about that, and he's like, I want you to preach on fasting. I said, God, this is a dumb idea. I'm just telling you right now, there were other churches teaching that Christians should be rich. You're telling me Christians should be hungry. I don't think that's the way you build a congregation. I don't think that's the right approach here. And, and he just, I just really felt strongly that God was telling me to, to preach on fasting. So I had to read all about it in, in the Bible, like, you know, like a real scholar, not get that from the book. And, and um, it was really funny. 14 people were here, but three of them came up to me after I preached and said, you know, this is really weird. I've been praying to God, and I feel like he's telling me I need to fast. And I told him I don't know how to fast. I wish he would teach me how to fast, and I don't know. And they came up to me and said, and I walked into church, and here we're, te- we're teaching on fasting, right? So um, I do believe that God deals with the body, you know, as a body. I mean, and he deals with us differently than other churches because we're different in our places with him than other people are. It's just, just kind of the way it goes. But anyway, so we got through it, a three-part series on fasting. I've talked to some people about fasting, though. And there's two teachings that come out a lot. First of all, you'll see this, where people want to teach you how to fast for long periods of time. And they actually have a program to work yourself up to preaching more. The goal is to be able to fast 40 days. So let me just tell you, um, there's been two people called to a 40-day fast. One was Moses, the giver of the law, and the other was Jesus Christ, the giver of grace. Now, if you think your ministry is as important as that, go ahead and fast for 40 days. But I see no other place in the Bible where anybody's ever called to fast like that. When the Israelites were called to fast, it was for one day. The Day of Atonement, they're called fast. One day. If you're trying to fast for seven days, 14 days, 30 days, 40 days, I'm betting there's spiritual pride in there. You want to go 40 days so you can say, I went 40 days. And if you've got spiritual pride when you're fasting, you have to understand that's exactly the opposite of where you should be when you're fasting. Fasting is about humbling yourself before the Lord. It's exactly wrong. But that's not as bad as the other teaching. And I've heard preachers that I greatly admire say this. They said this, that if you're praying and your prayer's not getting answered, you need to fast because fasting puts prayers on steroids. 
I've heard it. I've heard it more than once. And I can't tell you exactly what they mean by that because I usually don't listen to the rest of the sermon at that point. But I can tell you what it sounds like to me they're saying. You want God to answer your prayer fast. He'll answer your prayer if you fast because that shows him you're serious. No, it doesn't. That's absolutely wrong teaching. Absolutely it's wrong teaching because that's not what happens. If you're saying, look, I'm not going to eat God until you answer my prayer. That's not fasting. That's a hunger strike. And God doesn't do hunger strikes, right? We have to understand who God is. The purpose of fasting is to align ourselves with God and humble ourselves before the Lord. It's not to make him do our will. Fasting won't work like that. But I know people who thought it did and they went before the Lord to pray for something really heavily on their heart and they fasted and they prayed and the answer was no. And they couldn't even hear God say no because they're too busy yelling at God for not listening to them while they're fasting. And it shook their faith. And they actually said this to me. I don't know where God is. I don't understand where God is. God's where he always is. This isn't fasting. This is a hunger strike. This is, God didn't call you to do this. In, in, in the Old Testament, David fasts for seven days. God doesn't call him to do that, but David does it. He does it because he sinned with Bathsheba and their baby's going to die. And he's been told that by a prophet, your baby's going to die. And David repents of his sin and then goes and tears his clothes and puts ashes in his head. And for seven days, he fasts for the life of his baby. And everybody's freaking out because they don't know why he's doing this. They don't understand the spiritualness of what's going on. They just see the baby's sick and the king is freaking out over this. He had other babies they couldn't understand. And so when the baby finally dies, the housekeeper doesn't even want to tell him. You know, man, if he's like this when the baby's sick, he's going to jump out the window when I tell him the baby's dead. I don't want to tell him. But David hears them talking about it and says, what happened? And they said, your, your, your son has died. And David gets up, cleans himself up, goes down the kitchen and asks the cook to make him something. They said, what, how, how, how's this? And David says, well, look, the baby was prophesied to die, but I know God's merciful. So I wanted to tell him that I'm really seriously asking, would you please spare the baby's life? He chose not to, glory, glory to God. That's proper fasting. Not the seven days necessarily, but because his heart was there. He says, whatever you decide, God, I'm going to get behind, but would you please, right? Please be merciful here. I understand why it's going to happen, but would you look past the transgression? No, glory be to God. Get it, might as well eat, right? He never lost his faith in God because he knew who God was. He knew God was merciful. He should have been killed for what he did because it, it was a lot more than just the baby. He should, have been, he should have been killed and had their kingdom taken away from him and his sons for what he did. God had always shown him mercy. He was just asking for more. It's okay. You can be bold, ask God. But when God says no, it's no. Glory be to God. I know who God is. David knows who God is. And that's why he got up and he went back to it. We have to understand that God is always trying to teach us, but we'll only learn if we're willing to hear it. And, and instead of getting angry at him because he doesn't act the way we want God to act, we need to understand where our misunderstanding of God started and we've let something else get mixed with the salt. And we have to get it out. Uh, I was, the little example I gave uh, last week was about maps. And to me, I'm a geek, and this was interesting to me. When Apple first released their phone, they didn't want, like, Google Maps on it because they want to own the whole system. And so they had their own maps they came up with. Now, Apple's a very powerful company, very rich, but it turns out you need a lot of data to make good maps. And Apple Maps just weren't as good as, as Google Maps. 
and some people actually started testing them because they would like, you know, every, every now and then you hear a story about someone, you know, got sent to the wrong place. And so someone went out and tested it. And you know the difference between Google Maps and Apple Maps? 15%. But because of that 15%, there's a hue and cry that they had to open up the architecture and let Google add it. Because they're saying, I'm not using that. I'm not giving it up that 15% accuracy. I think that's probably about right. I, I think it's about 15% is all needs to get mixed in with our truth. And all of a sudden, we're going to lose faith in it. That's probably about right. And that's what's happening. We lose faith in the Lord when we should be doubling down on the Lord. And God's trying to teach us and God's trying to show us. He's trying to bring us through the seasons. He's trying to produce fruit in our lives. And we're just simply saying, God, you're not behaving the way I want you to, the way I thought you were going to. Well, guess who's wrong then? Not God. The seed is always correct. God is the same today as he was a thousand years ago and he'll be a thousand years from now. God's word has never changed. If we're not seeing fruit, we're not seeing fruit because we've changed. We have to get our soil right and we have to keep the impurities out or we're not going to see the fruit that God wants us to see in our lives. And I'm not talking about salvation here. I'm talking about fruit in your life. Knowing God will help you in times of trouble. Knowing religion will help nothing. Would you all please pray with me?